I know we've sung that song numerous times. Something that hit me today in that, and, and maybe it's because of the subject matter of the sermon today, but that song really is sort of an exposition of the Lord's Prayer. It's singing and praying the same things that Jesus is teaching us to sing about and pray about in the Lord's Prayer as we've been looking at it for several weeks now. Remember, we come to our third sermon this morning on how to pray, our fifth sermon on prayer, on the Lord's Prayer, but our third one on how to pray. We looked at how not to pray. And now we come to how to pray. And, and the words of Jesus just ring so clear and so contrary, perhaps, to much of our prayer. You know, we have to remember, I want to remind us over and over again as we look at this text, that what we have here in the Lord's Prayer, what we have here in the whole Sermon on the Mount that we're looking at, is Jesus talking about how believers, those who are true disciples of Jesus Christ, are different. They are different from the world. God has done a work in their heart. God has done a work in their life and has transformed them into something different from what they once were. They are now in Him. They've been given new life. They've been changed. And so it just goes to figure that if we have been changed completely, then our way of praying will be changed also. And so he starts out by saying, when you pray, worship. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Come before him and say, Lord, make your name holy in my life and in our church and in the world around us. Lord, be made holy. Be manifest as holy, and let my life be a part of reflecting that holiness. Let my life point people to the living and the holy God. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed, holy be your name, lifted up high. Your kingdom come. We talked about that last week in depth, and, and I only want to say it again this week to remind you that his kingdom is not of this world in the sense of setting up a throne or a national government. The government of the United States does not constitute the kingdom of God. God's kingdom is among his people. God's kingdom is where the gospel is spread and where God reigns as Lord and King in the lives of his people and in his church. And so we come to understand that your kingdom come means, Lord, spread your kingdom, spread the gospel, and use us in making that gospel visible and in spreading that gospel throughout the world. The group just got back from Poland where they did that. Uh, we do that here in Somerset, and we need to do it here before we do it elsewhere. But we still don't neg neglect elsewhere. We do it here, we do it there. We spread the gospel, and the spreading of the gospel message is bringing about the kingdom of God as people come by the Holy Spirit to submit themselves to the authority and the lordship of Jesus Christ. Your kingdom come. And then he comes to this phrase we want to look at this morning. Your will be done. And then he qualifies it. Not only your will be done, but your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He says, pray that. Pray for that. Consciously think about that when you're addressing your heavenly Father. When you're addressing the one who rules and reigns over all the universe, you ought, to, you ought to be praying for his holiness, you ought to be praying for his kingdom, but you ought to also be praying, Lord, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now let's be honest. I mean, let's just get real honest this morning. 
When we pray, do we usually pray first and foremost for God's will? No. No, usually we pray first and foremost for my will. Now we do pray, God, if you don't mind, let your will be what my will is. You know, if you possibly could, Lord, let my will be the thing that you exalt above everything else and do what I want you to do. I mean, if you listen to our prayers, so often our prayers are, Lord, I just want you to take my counsel. I just want you to take my advice here. You know, I, I think in this situation, in my life, or in my family's life, or in our community, whatever it might be, I just want you to know, Lord, I think that my counsel, my wisdom is better than your wisdom. I know better what we need than you do. Well, Jesus already said, listen, when you pray, don't be repetitious, don't give vain repetition. Why? Because your Father already knows what you need before you even say it. So it's rather foolish, isn't it? To approach God by saying, okay, Lord, now here's the way it is. I want you to be sure you understand the circumstances. Lord, you, you might be busy, you might be preoccupied, and you might have missed this, so I want to be sure that I clearly delineate what I think is the most important thing in this situation. And our prayers sound like we're saying, God, I've come to give you counsel. I've come to give you advice, and I sure do hope, Lord, that you accept that. It's really what our prayers look like many, many times. Now, that doesn't mean we don't pray for personal things. He'll talk about that later on in this prayer. But it does mean that first and foremost, we are to pray, Father, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I prayed this past Friday morning before we drove back. I got word that a very uh, influential man in my life was literally in a coma at the point of death. And I went down to visit with he and his wife. She was under, he's under hospice care. When I was growing up, his son was my best friend. And we, I spent as much time at his house as I did at my house. This, this Mr. and Ms. White were like, uh, I didn't call him, I'd call him Mr. Jimmy, uh, Mr. James Hugh and, and Miss Catherine, but they were, they were just like second parents to me. And I got word that Mr. James Hugh was at the point of death. And so I, I made special range, went down and visited with Miss Catherine and prayed with her for a while, and, and, and then prayed over Mr. White. And I, I prayed there. I said, Lord, I thank you for what you've done in his life and in my life through him. And Lord, if it be your will, I just ask you to either raise him up from this bed or take him on home with, and, and, and show him your glory and presence. But I didn't presume to tell God what he ought to do said, Lord, if it be your will, and we'll talk about that in a minute, because many today say, oh, you ought never add that to your prayer. Because if you pray that, you're showing doubt, you're showing uncertainty. You need to pray with a, vi a, a, a vigilance. You need to pray with a certainty. Well, I think you pray with a certainty when you pray as our, G as our Lord Jesus informed us and taught us to pray, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, there is a little bit of ambiguity here perhaps in some cases because a lot of times we we struggle with exactly what the text means as a matter of fact there are two words in the greek that can be translated and are translated in various places with our little english word will there is thimala and bulama and, and both of those words are translated simply by the by the english word will and they carry with them some different nuances. There, there are really three ways in Scripture that, that the word will is understood and the word will is translated. 
the, the first of all, I think, and the most clear one in many cases, is, God, is it's talking about God's sovereign, efficacious will. If you will, His decreative will. That, that which He decrees, that which He says is to be, and it is. I mean, at creation, as the, the world was being formed by His his own power, he spoke and things came into existence. That, that was his decreative will. He said, let there be light, and there was light. The elements didn't rebel against him. They didn't say, well, no, 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 we want it to stay dark for just a while longer. He said, let there be light, and the scripture says, and there was light, period. He decreed it. In our Lord's life, in Jesus, when he was uh, on the earth, and, and Lazarus, his dear friend, had died and was dead for four days, and he went back to Bethany, and, and Mary and Martha met him there, and they were weeping, they were, they were grieving because he had not come back and healed their brother while he was but sick. He stayed away until he'd been dead for four days and buried in the tomb, and the stone rolled away, uh, rolled in front of his, the, the door. And he told him to roll the stone away, and Jesus spoke into that tomb the very will, the creative will of God, and he says, Lazarus, Come forth. Now, I contend to you that Lazarus didn't say, I don't want to come forth. I don't want to be alive. I'm, by my own free will, I want to stay here and be dead. I just want to stay here dead. Jesus, leave me alone. Didn't do, couldn't do that. God decreed, God declared that Lazarus, the dead man for four days, was to come out of that grave, and that's exactly what he did. There is the decreative, sovereign, efficacious will of God. Isaiah talked about it in Isaiah 46 when he said, Remember the former things long past, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things which have not been done. Saying, this is God speaking, my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. I mean, God says there, there is a certain dimension of his will that there is no question about. If he says it, it will be done. If he declares it and decrees it, it will be done. Isaiah spoke about it again in Isaiah 55, 11. So will my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing all that I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. God says, if I speak it, it will accomplish exactly what I intend for it to do. I had somebody say to me one time when I was preaching on that text, they, it wasn't here, it was in another place, but they came up to me after and they said, well, you said Isaiah 55, 11 said that God says that he will accomplish what he sends his word out to do and it will succeed in the matter with which he sent it. And I said, yeah. He said, but only if we allow it to. And I said, I didn't read that there. I don't think God said that there. You know, we have this, this false idea that our will and our desires trump God's will and God's desire anytime, any place, anywhere. It's not what the Scripture teaches. Uh, you know, that's why Jesus says you begin your prayers, you concentrate your prayers on, Father, your will be done. I want to know what your will is, Lord, in my life and in my church and in our community. Because this decreative will of God that Isaiah is talking about will always be done. There's a second type of will, though, in the Scripture, beyond the decreative will of God. That is what we might call the preceptive will of God. This has to do with His law and His commandments. It's expressed most clearly in the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. 
You shall remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. You shall honor your father and your mother. You shall not steal. You shall not kill. You, you know all of them. You shall not commit adultery. Don't lie. All those things are part of the, of the preceptive will of God, the precepts, the law, the commands of God. And he speaks them very clearly. Those are the things that God would desire for your life to reflect. And he commands those things. Is the preceptive will of God ever, is it ever violated? Well, it certainly is. It's violated every day. It's not only violated every day, it's violated by every single person. Because we don't live perfectly under the command and the lordship of Jesus Christ as we ought. And so when God says, you shall have no other gods before me, it may very well be that in our, even in the lives of believers sometimes, we let other things become more important to us in our relationship with God. And we disobey. And we violate. And we break the preceptive will of God. That's exactly what, Jesus, what, what the, the scripture talks about there. That there are precepts that God says, you shall do this. And many times they are violated and many times they are broken. There's a third way that will is used sometimes, and, and in this way the Bible speaks to the will of God in terms of his basic disposition or his inclination. That is what is pleasing to him and what is displeasing to him. And, and the word will is used there sometimes. I think that's shown most clearly in a verse like 2 Peter 3.9. In verse Peter, 2 Peter 3.9, Peter says this, The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but to, for all to come to repentance. Now, uh, you know, you look at that and you, you read that, and I know there's several ways you have to look at it from different angles. I'm only going to look at it from one this morning. But the truth of the matter is, if you interpret that according to number one, God's sovereign uh, uh, will that is efficacious in everything it does, then Peter is saying that all men everywhere will eventually be saved. It's universalism. And I think there are many clear teachings in Scripture that, that say that's not the way that's to be interpreted. If you interpret it as number two, the preceptive will of God, then you have to say, well, then God says you shall not do what causes perishing. You shall not move toward perishing. And so if you're moving toward perishing, you're sinning. That's against my preceptive will. But, you know... We know that it's sin that leads to that, uh, to that uh, perishing. It's, it's sin that leads away from that. And so we're, we, we know that that doesn't fit. The only way that verse really makes any sense to understand it is to, to interpret it in light of number three. That is referring to God's disposition. He finds no joy in the perishing of anybody. He says that in his word through Ezekiel. Ezekiel 18, verse 32, he says, For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone who dies. Talking about spiritual death there, declares the Lord. Therefore, repent and live. Or Ezekiel 33, 11, Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked turn from his way and live, turn back, turn back from your evil ways. Why then will you die, O house of Israel? I mean, it is, it is God's disposition that he loves all of his creation in a, in a general sort of way, and he, does, he doesn't find any pleasure in seeing anyone cast into hell. Now, if they, are, if they are unrepentant sinners, the Scripture makes clear they will. But God doesn't say, oh boy, there goes another one into hell. That, that's not his disposition. He finds no pleasure in that. He finds no joy in that. He, 
he, he grieves over the fact of man's rebellion. For we were not created to be rebellious people. We were created to enjoy the, the presence and the pleasures of God for all time. So there are three ways to look at will. What did Jesus mean here? Well, I think honestly the only way you can clearly look at that and say pray for your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven is to understand that I believe he's speaking of the preceptive will of God. That is, what his, what his commands are, what his uh, orders are, if you will, what his precepts are for godly and righteous living. The Ten Commandments and many others. You know, love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your might and love your neighbor as yourself. That's a preceptive will of God. He's expressing that as that is what we are to do. And we understand it because when you qualify it as he did on earth as it is in heaven, you realize that in heaven God is always obeyed by angels and he's always obeyed by glorified believers that are there. So our prayer here is praying, Lord... Lord, show me your will in your word. Help me to search your word. Help me to know what you have commanded toward my life. And then, Lord, give me the strength and give me the ability and give me the, 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 the power to do it, is what he's saying. You know, I, I love the early catechisms. The, Spurgeon's catechism, which was built on the Westminster catechism, but, but it's Baptist, so I'll use Spurgeon's question here. Uh, Spurgeon's first question in his catechism, like Westminster, was what is the chief end of man? Simple question. What is the chief end of man? And the catechism answer is man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. To glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Now, how in the world do they get that? Well, the truth of the matter is the chief end of man is what will be done in heaven perfectly. That's the end of the believer's life. When we get there, we will glorify God. We will worship Him in purity and without any pretense that may affect us here on this earth. And we will enjoy Him. We will enjoy being in His presence. We will enjoy hearing His word and His words. We will enjoy just coming around the throne of God in an unbelievable way. And, and that's what we're to do here on earth as we prepare ourselves for heaven. And so what is the chief end of man right now on earth is the same as it is in heaven. To, enjoy God, to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Paul made that clear in, in 1 Corinthians 10.31 when he said this about glorifying God, he said, whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. That couldn't be any clearer, could it? Are you eating? Do it to the glory of God. Are you drinking? Do it to the glory of God. Whatever you do, if you go to work, do it for the glory of God. Do all things for His glory. That is your purpose here on this earth as a believer. It's, it's a purpose of all mankind. But because of unregenerate souls, it's not fulfilled. But it is to be fulfilled in the life of every believer. And to, and to enjoy Him forever. What do you mean enjoy Him? How do we enjoy God here? Well, the psalmist David said in Psalm 73 these words, Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Here's a 
there's to be a relationship that we enjoy that's unlike any other relationship. You know, you enjoy your relationship with your husband or your wife. There's an intimacy there. There's a oneness there. There's a, a unity there that is surpass, that surpasses every other human relationship. But the psalmist David said, listen, but even beyond that, there is to be an enjoyment in your relationship to God through Jesus Christ. There's to be an intimacy. Jeff read that this morning out of Philippians. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection. And he goes on to say, and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed even to his death. I just want to know him in the most intimate way possible. And I know that comes by the power that he gives me in his resurrection. Wow. What a truth. What a glory. That God has called us to do that, to, to glorify him and to enjoy him forever. That's part of his preceptive will. And that's what Jesus is praying for here. Lord, help me be obedient. Help me understand. Help me obey you and glorify you. Help me spread your gospel. Help me do what you've called me to do right now on this earth. Because you see, there are two things. There are two things that those who are gathered around the throne of God are doing right now, right this very minute. I went yesterday morning to Frank Carrington's mother, or grandmother, who is like his mother, raised him as a mother to her funeral yesterday morning. And, and I couldn't help but keep thinking, as I, because she was a believer, I, I couldn't help but keep thinking as I was in that funeral. And also a dear friend of mine in Orlando, for, uh, 53 years old, had died the night before. And I kept thinking of it, and I know Scott. Scott used to lead worship with his guitar at a local church there, and he just, he could lead, he just led worship beautifully. And I, I thought about Scott, and I thought about Frank's grandmother. You know what they're doing right now? They're doing two things. First of all, they're glorifying God. They're worshiping. And, and they're not worrying about their appearance, not worrying about uh, what they have in this earth or what they don't have in this earth. They don't need any of that stuff anymore. They're just glorifying and worshiping God for who He is. The second thing they're doing, they're enjoying God. You know, Jesus in His prayer, both in John 17, the, the high priestly prayer, and in His statement to the disciples in John 15 before He went to the cross, He said, you know, I pray that your joy may be full. Well, that joy is fully, completely realized when we're in the presence of our Lord. But we experience something of it here when we walk with him, and when we learn to genuinely pray, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In heaven, the angels and the glorified saints are glorifying you and enjoying you. And I pray, Lord, that on this earth, in my life, in our church's life, all throughout this community, that men and women will come to a point of praying that, Lord, your will be done in my life. Let me glorify you. Let me enjoy you right now. In ways like I never have. I mentioned earlier praying, if it be your will. You know, our world has been captivated by what I believe is one of the most diabolical lies of Satan that's ever been. It's the whole word faith movement. It's the whole name it and claim it theology. 
which says, oh, you, just, you don't pray if it be your will. You just name it and you claim it, and God has to do it. Well, John said, your prayers will be answered if you pray in accordance with my will. I mean, I've been naming and claiming a Porsche for the last 35 years, and I still don't have that Porsche. I don't really pray for it anymore because I've grown a little bit, and I realize that's not what I ought to be praying for, but it'd still be nice. But that's not what I'm praying. That's not the point of prayer. The point of prayer is not somehow getting out of God what you want because your will is superior to His will. Your knowledge is superior to His knowledge. What you want is the most important thing in God's eyes, according to this theory, that there ever was. Let me tell you something, folks. God is not concerned with you getting what you want. God is concerned with you getting what you need and seeing how much you need Him above everything else. Material things become immaterial. Stuff becomes unimportant. He never promised in his word, as far as I could, could, can tell, that you would have great wealth and great possessions. He said your needs would be met if you're his. And he'll take care of every need, and I can testify to that. I've, I've lived for 58 years and I know that every need I've ever had has been met. Sometimes when I couldn't see it, God was working all things together to meet my needs. But he never gave me the Porsche. I don't understand that. Except that his will and his purpose is more important than my will. And my will does not trump his will. His will is supreme. His will is perfect. And there are the creative parts of his will. There are... There are uh, precept, pre, uh, preceptive parts of his will and we need to learn the difference and we need to concentrate on our obedience I really think in these first two verses of this prayer that Jesus gives us he's reminding us of two simple things that we need to remember when we pray write these down remember these these are important we must remember who he is and who we are. And we must remember that he is God. And we ain't. Okay. He is God and we're not. You know? We need to realize his wisdom is superior to our wisdom. His purposes are superior to our purposes. His desires are superior to our desires. His will is superior to our will. You know, in my ministry for the last 30 years, I probably had that question asked of me more than any other question. Pastor, how can I know God's will in a certain situation? How can I know God's will and who I'll marry? How can I know God's will and what kind of job I'll do, what career I'll pursue? How can I know God's will? And I always come back to say, listen, you're getting ahead of things. God's will for you is A, that you pray without ceasing and that you be made holy. That you be submitting to his authority, to his lordship in every case. And I tell you what, this isn't the answer you want. But if you're pursuing him, if you're doing what, uh, boy, Bev, you couldn't have chosen a better song for the choir. If you're seeking first his righteousness and his kingdom, if you're pursuing first and foremost above everything else, even above your own comfort, His righteousness and His kingdom, all these other 
things will be taken care of. That is a promise. Our problem is we want the things before we do the pursuing. We want the things before we say, okay, God, you're worthy of me following you. God wants to see his worthiness. You know, Jesus even gave us that example in the Garden of Gethsemane the night before his crucifixion. The night before he came, became our substitute and our sacrifice, he knelt there in the garden with his disciples around him. He knew the agony that was coming. And it wasn't just the nails in his hands and feet and the spear in his side and physical death. He knew that he was about to go to a point of becoming sin on our behalf. <laughs> There's the hell of the cross. It wasn't the physical pain. It was the spiritual pain of he who knew no sin becoming sin that we who have no righteousness might become the very righteousness of God. I mean, there was a transaction going to take place there that was nothing short of hell itself. prayed in the garden he said father if there is any other way if there's any other way to redeem your people if there's any other way that, that it can be done without me becoming sin if there's any other way Lord I, I'd, I'd be honest with you I'll, I'd like to have that way but what did he say not my will not my will your will be done. God's going to take us as individual Christians through some situations that quite honestly we'd just as soon not do. We're going to have to face some grief and some pain and some hurt if we're following Christ that we just as soon would not do. But we have to come to the point of saying, Lord, not my will, but your will be done. Let's pray. Father, forgive us for our arrogance that presumes that we can tell you what is best. Forgive us of our arrogance that refuses to understand that you know what we need before we even voice it. And you know what your perfect will is for our life and we need to pursue it. Lord, forgive us of our pride that says, I'm the most important person here in this equation. Lord, you need to do what I want you to do because I am me. Lord, we'd never express it so arrogantly and so pridefully, but we do it subtly every single day. I do it because it's just a part of that sin nature to do it, but Lord, I don't want to do it. I don't like it. So Lord, I pray in Bill Haynes' life, your will be done. Right now, as ultimately it will completely in heaven. 
I pray, Lord, that in Grace Baptist Church, your will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And I pray, Father, you use us as a part of that will that we know is true to bring about your kingdom's expansion through sharing the gospel with that lost person at work tomorrow. Who they may laugh, they may get angry, they may make fun of us. But Lord, we know they're not rejecting us. They're rejecting the king. You've just called us to be faithful in presenting. Father, I pray you bring about your will on earth as it is in heaven. Thank you, Father. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.